You have a destiny, but your destiny is fulfilled by investing in the destinies of others. Leadership says, I'm willing to take you to a place where you might not necessarily want to go, but I'm willing, if necessary, to sacrifice myself so that you can get there, most of all. How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Welcome to In Context. We are so glad that you are tuning with us today. We are beginning our third season of Michael Easley In Context. My name is Hannah Seymour. I am your co-host, and I am with the Michael Easley, who also happens to be my padre. How are you doing today, Dad? I'm doing great. Always great to hang out with you. Yeah, I feel the same. It's fun. Yeah. It is fun. So, Dad, we are starting a new series to kick off this third season called The Leadership Process. Tell us a little bit about that? Well, of course, Nehemiah is not a book about leadership per se, but we learn a tremendous amount about leadership through the life and times of Nehemiah. So when we lived in the Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C. area, uh, I taught through the book of Nehemiah several years ago, and it was interesting. The response was far more than I anticipated. Hmm. Of course, in that culture, you have uh, the uh, military, you have appointed and elected officials, you have a high turnover rate, a lot of people at their A-game who end up in that part of the country for a period of three, four years. All that to say, um, we thought it'd be a good, uh, actually it was your idea, it was your <laughs> idea to, to revisit this study and to refresh it, renew it. And one of the fun things we did was to distill down a number of topics that we then went after subject matter experts, yeah, SMEs. And we talked to men and women around the country and asked them to give us stories and anecdotes along the lines of things like, um, how does a leader identify with the people they influence? How does a leader serve yet lead? That's a big topic today, what servant leadership. Yeah, absolutely. And complicated, frankly. Uh, how do you pray diligently? I think many people approach problems in life without stopping to pray. And is it rote? Is it cliche? How do you do that? What's mm-hmm. it look like? Um, we asked men and women about keeping their integrity in check, about encouraging those that are under them, about keeping the main thing the main thing. And we got an interesting array of responses from some of our guests. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about some of our subject matter experts. I mean, just give us a teaser. Well, a number of them are authors, obviously. Uh, one is a three-star Air Force general who uh, has been around the world literally and written a little book on leadership. One is a friend of yours and mine who's a radio talk show host, and she's probably one of the quickest, most articulate people you'll ever hear on <laughs> sure any <is>. subject. <laughs> just, we both were our mouths Jaws hanging open listening to her answer. Like, let's just let her do the whole program. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, men and women you may not know by their name or reputation, but who gave us some gold about some of these topics. How does a leader process through things like identifying with their people, keeping the main thing the main thing, sensing God's hand, how does a leader worship and these ideas. So it'll be interesting as we fold those into the study of Nehemiah, as opposed to me just giving an illustration, 
Let's hear them tell their anecdote, their story, and I think it'll be a rich time as we review these uh, leadership principles and how the process works. Well, you prepared a brief introduction to the text of Nehemiah where you give us your definition of leadership. And actually, when the show began, we heard a couple other definitions of leadership from some of our guests that will be coming up in future episodes. And you also give us a final thought looking at the first chapter of Nehemiah when you are in a leadership position and you're facing a difficult time. What's your response? And we have this amazing example in Nehemiah and see how he responds. And so let's go ahead and take a look at the first chapter of Nehemiah and jump right in. We're going to take a new look at the book of Nehemiah. Now, some of you may say, wait a minute, Nehemiah is not technically a study on leadership, and that has been debated for decades. What I can argue is that while the book is not primarily a leadership primer, it is chock full of leadership principles. So we'll be taking a look at how Nehemiah was moved by God's Spirit to go accomplish an impossible task, and he does it in extraordinary ways. During this series, we're going to point out 15 leadership traits or maxims that I believe are biblical and transferable no matter what time or context we find ourselves in. But let me start with defining leadership before we look at some of the book of Nehemiah. While there are thousands of leadership definitions, we could catalog them, we could try and vote on them, we could take them to committee, and we could try to come up with a consensus. And you know what? We couldn't get there. In fact, consensus is one of the models of leadership that's often heralded today. Maybe we evaluate leadership by results, who can get things done. Therefore, we'd call them a result-oriented leader. Or maybe we'd quantify them based on elections and re-elections in the political realm. Can a man or woman find himself back in office again and again? We could look at pragmatism. We could look at profit and loss. We could go on and on on leadership and how you define it. Let me suggest a leadership definition that I've honed. I'm not saying it's perfect, and it could certainly use improvement. But let me give it to you, and you can noodle on it, and you can think about it, especially as we walk through this study in Nehemiah. Leadership is the process of influencing people toward godly principles and practices through biblical wisdom as demonstrated in attitude, activity, and ability. It's long. Let me give it to you one more time. Leadership is the process of influencing people toward godly principles and practices through biblical wisdom as demonstrated in attitude, activity, and ability. Now, each one of those terms is chock full of intent. For example, leadership is a process. It's not an end. It's not an event. It's not even a rousing speech or a rallying cry. Leadership is a process. It has different paces, different structures, different venues. It takes time. But equally as important as the process is who are we trying to influence? We're trying to influence people. Now, it may seem obvious, but we're not trying to build a product or a widget or produce something. It takes others, people, teams, groups working on a project to get that thing accomplished. I think too often leaders can think about the product or the end result and they miss the most important part is that we're about influencing people. I remember years ago talking to a godly Christian friend of mine who led over 350 engineers. He told me his greatest challenge was not budget, it wasn't technology, it wasn't deadlines, it was people. 
It was getting people to work on the same page, to work together toward a common goal. His role was to influence those people. Well, if leadership is a process of influencing people, then I would suggest also toward principles and practices. Or put it simply, thinking and doing. We've got to help people think correctly before they're going to do the right things. Whether it's corporate values, ideals, attitudes, the practice that we are trying to inculcate in people has got to be preceded by principles. What do we believe? What do we value? What is important to us? Unless those principles are translated from the leader, it's pretty hard to put them into practice. A lot of companies have vision statements. A lot of churches have vision statements. They're in plaques on walls. They're maybe silk screened on t-shirts. Or maybe even they're found watermarked on the letterhead and stationery. At the end of the day, they don't mean a thing if people don't own those principles. And until they get the principles, practice has got a long way to go. Now, the way or the means by which leadership influences people toward these godly principles and practices is through biblical wisdom. Now, wisdom is, means a lot of things, and I'm going to argue that leadership must be ensconced and benchmarked in wisdom. We have to draw on other resources. We have to draw on those who know more. We have to draw on those who have been around the block. And there's a powerful presence of a leader he or she who has wisdom and knowledge base that we can go to. We all need the expert. Now, we're living in a time when we don't always value wisdom. So part of our job as leaders is helping others understand what wisdom is and is not. And scripture, of course, is chock full. The Proverbs is an example of what it means to apply knowledge, to gain wisdom, to live in such a way that we walk worthy in a wise manner. So in order for us to lead, we need a lot of things. We need the ability to influence others toward godly principles and practices, and we need wisdom. Now, how do we demonstrate that wisdom? Attitude, activity, and ability. How do we help others have the right attitude? Well, it certainly begins with our own. How are we doing the right activity, the right things? Again, it reflects on what the leader does. And ability is the outlier. Some people don't have the right abilities, correct? No, no leader has all the abilities. So our goal is to influence those people with different gift sets, talents, and abilities so they're maximized in this process. One more time, leadership is the process of influencing people toward godly principles and practices through biblical wisdom as demonstrated in attitude, activity, and ability. Well, let's talk about this old book, Nehemiah. <laughs> Nehemiah precedes the book of Ezra, which was about the rebuilding of the temple. The book of Nehemiah is about rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. Now, Nehemiah is not in Israel as the book begins. The people of Israel have been in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. This was part of God's judgment on them. And there were a series of Persian kings who then ruled these exiled Jews that lived in Persia under Persian kings. Cyrus is the one who overthrew Babylon about 539 BC. And he issued a decree that really was kind to let the Jews go back to their land in about 538. Now, to get a little bit of context, Babylon is modern-day Iraq, and Persia is modern-day Iran. 
So these countries in the Middle East still hold clout on the political scheme. Now, Nehemiah takes place approximately 445 to 425 B.C., and a king named Adderxerxes will rule uh, during some of this time period. Most of us know Nehemiah had a job called being a cupbearer, and uh, we'll get into that in some detail, but in a sense, he was like a very important butler to King Adderxerxes. His heart, however, is toward his people, and this is a great observation of a guy who's displaced from his homeland, yet living faithfully. And you know, that's a principle for all of us. Uh, We may not be where we want to be. We may not be in our homeland. Certainly most of us aren't spiritually in exile. But Nehemiah is still being faithful and working hard as a servant of Yahweh Elohim, even though he's displaced from his homeland. His job is going to be to rebuild a wall. Now think about this in progression. Why is the wall important? The wall does two things. It not only protects the people inside the wall, but it prevents enemies from entering into the city complex. This wall was, more importantly, that which established worship. You can't worship Yahweh Elohim in his temple complex the way he intended unless you have a wall around the city. It not only protects the people inside, but it gives them a security and sense of this is God's city. We're in here. We're safe. We're able to worship God the way he intended, the way he designed. So the report comes to Nehemiah about the wall's destruction. It's not been rebuilt. And through a series of prayers and great planning, Nehemiah approaches the Persian king and asks for permission to go and rebuild the wall. This in itself is a remarkable story because the king not only allows him permission to do it, he equips him with the resources necessary to accomplish this incredible task. As we'll see in the book, he's going to finish this project in 52 days. I don't know in America with the best technology and engineers and pert charts and planners we could do something this monumental in such a short time. It's a great study in management and getting people to work. I don't know if you've seen some of these groups that come in and raise a barn in one day or build a church in one day, but you know the engineering and the planning and the equipment procurement before that day of building, there were months and months of planning and organization. And that's what we're going to see a little bit of in the book of Nehemiah. He's going to organize this to the nth degree so that they can accomplish it. doesn't mean it's going to be easy. In fact, some of it will seem insurmountable. But nevertheless, his heart and passion is for God's people. Well, let's listen to a part of Nehemiah chapter 1. They said to me, The remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, 
If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. It's a long prayer. It's chock full of great theology, which we're going to look at in the broadcast ahead. But let me just leave you with one thought today. When Nehemiah heard of this report, his first response is repentance and prayer. When I heard these words, I sat down. I wept. I mourned for days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The sober reminder to any of us in leadership, when we hear bad news, when we hear of a problem, we hear of an issue, whether it's in a church, in a company, in our home, in our country, how often do we sit down, take a breath, repent, cry, fast, pray, lament, or do we get busy, or do we become overwhelmed, or you know, how do we respond? It's a striking beginning of a book that when he hears this horrific news, his response is to stop, to pray, to weep, to fast, and mourn for days. I don't know what you're facing as a leader. I don't know what you have faced or will face. None of us can predict our futures. This is a key lesson for all of us. When the difficulties come, when the opportunities arise, when the problems hit us, stop, pray, repent, mourn, and take some time and know that the God of heaven hears your prayers. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters. Scripture reading by Jason Germain. 